The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. This is God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are going to continue tonight in our study of Mark's gospel and One of the central themes that we've noticed uh, throughout this book is that one of the main questions Mark is trying to answer is, who is Jesus? And here we find ourselves, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the last week of his life. And some of the Pharisees and the Herodians have come to trap him, as Mark describes it here in verse 13. And they've come to trap him, and they've, they want to know, should they pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they come to him with an either-or, yes-or-no question, and present this trap as if there really are only two options, and hopefully he'll get the right answer. And I think this question and the trap that's set for him, in many ways, it echoes what I think many commentators in our culture today describe as the polarization of our own society, our own culture. It's either either Republican or Democrat. You're either rich or poor. You're either religious or you're irreligious. And it's either yes or no. It's either either or. There's no nuance. There's no room for discussion. There's no room for holding one view and yet... Uh, being able to disagree and in, engage in meaningful conversation without it automatically resulting in the sense of, well, we're just polarized. And they come to Jesus with this yes or no, either or trap. But Jesus here responds with an answer that at the end of this passage tells us leaves everyone speechless in verse 17. Jesus response to this, to the Pharisees and the Herodians, leaves everyone speechless. They're marveling at him. And as much as any other passage in the New Testament, especially in in Matthew, and it's also covered in Matthew and Luke, this passage in Mark's gospel uh, gives us a window in on Jesus' approach to politics. It's his, say, ground zero of how he thinks about your public faith. How should Christians in the church engage in public faith or politics? And in our day, just as in Jesus' day, I think the temptation is to oversimplify those challenges and the complexities of our society and culture and reduce them like the Pharisees and the Herodians do to an either-or soundbite that's really better suited for a campaign uh, trail or campaign slogan than what I hope we will see, selfless, thoughtful, and humble engagement with real people. 
Therefore, I want us to see what Jesus teaches us according to the gospel is that our politics must be shaped not by self-interest, but by a relationship with God through faith in him. And he teaches us three things here. We see three things about his Jesus' politics, if you will, from this passage. We see the logic of his politics, the call of his politics, and then finally the power of Jesus' politics. So we'll look at the logic, the call, and the power. First, let's look at the logic of Jesus' politics. And in order to do that, I want us to, I need to give you a little bit of historical background. Because, first of all, we need to understand who are these people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who have come to Jesus to trap him. It'd be easy to rush past this, but uh, these two groups of people are coming to Jesus uh, in light of a very significant historical event that we'll touch on in a moment. But first, the Pharisees, they were one of the three major groups of the Sanhedrin. And if you were here with us last week, we looked at the Sanhedrin, who had come to confront and challenge Jesus' authority. The Sanhedrin was, they were the the most powerful Jewish religious and political body of his day. And here are some of these Pharisees come, and the Pharisees, they were known for being extremely concerned for the Mosaic law, for legal purity and ritual purity, and particularly adherence to what Mark describes in Mark chapter 7, the traditions of the elders, the oral tradition that came up around God's law to help people know what to do in order not to break God's law. So those are the Pharisees. But then there's the Herodians. And the Herodians really were, couldn't be more different than the Pharisees. They were influential aristocrats. aristocrats. They were the influential business people, the movers and shakers, who were not interested in the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin, but they were interested in King Herod. And by extension, the Roman rule and authority upon which Herod's authority rested. So think of it this way. You have the Pharisees who, uh, to use maybe more contemporary labels that might um, correspond for us, you got the Pharisees who are like the religious fundamentalists on the one hand. Teaming up with, on the other hand, the Herodians who are more or less like the progressive secularists. Now, these are not likely partners And yet, they have forged a common alliance over their common enemy, Jesus. And in fact, this alliance reaches back into Mark chapter 3, verse 6. That's the first time that we hear about the Pharisees and the Herodians begin to plot Jesus' destruction. So that's who these two groups are, but why are they coming to Jesus And why are they asking him about these taxes? Well, they're not asking Jesus about taxes in general. They're coming to Jesus asking him about a very specific tax. And it was called the head tax or a poll tax. And it was a tax that was begun back in A.D. 6, about 25 years earlier than the events of which Mark records in this story. 
And in AD 6, a very significant event happened. It was in that year that Rome, that Judea, had become a Roman province. It was in that year that Rome claimed authority and power over Judea. And in that very same year, there was a revolt led by a man whose name was Judas of Galilee. And that revolt was very short-lived. But it would have been very fresh in the minds of all of the people in Jesus' day, and in the Pharisees and the Herodians. And it was in that year that this poll tax was instituted, against which this revolt was launched. Because to pay that tax essentially meant you were yielding to Rome, that you were identifying with Rome, that you were abandoning your Jewish heritage and your Jewish faith. And Judas of Galilee would have none of it, and yet the Romans put the revolt down, and he was crucified, actually. Now, think about this for a moment. Now you have Jesus, who comes preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And just earlier, in chapter 11, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to the shouts and rejoicing of the crowd singing and saying, here is the king, the coming king. And even after that, Jesus has just cleared the temple and claimed absolute authority over God's house. Now, that sounds like it could be a revolt. And the question in the minds of the Pharisees and the Herodians is, is Jesus another revolutionary? Has the inspiration of Judas of Galilee in AD 6 lived on and now here is another would-be Messiah come to deliver God's people from Roman rule and oppression? So the intention here of this question by the Herodians and the Pharisees, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, really is not so much about taxes as much as it is about who is Jesus. And they ask him this question to create an inescapable dilemma. They put him on the horns of a dilemma. Because essentially what they're saying is that allegiance to God and allegiance to Rome are fundamentally incompatible. You can't do both. And for Jesus to answer yes to this question would essentially mean that Jesus would alienate all of the people following him, including all the religious leaders. It would be a pro-Roman response. But if Jesus was to answer no to the question, he would then give reason to denounce him to the Roman authorities, which would most certainly indicate that he was a revolutionary, which would certainly find short lived effort in the face of Roman military might. So, what is the logic of Jesus' politics in light of the situation? What does he do? Why is his answer so impressive and marveling to, to all of those listening to him? The reason is because Jesus doesn't give a yes or a no answer. 
And he does this all the time. He gets asked a question by his enemies to challenge him, and he comes back with another question. And what does he do? He asks for a denarius, because this poll tax was one denarius per head. And what Jesus has for us in this answer that he gives when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he's essentially saying that for Jesus, politics and faith are not mutually exclusive, but they do have a proper order. So what is that order? What's he talking about? How are, how are we to relate politics and faith? How are we to begin figuring out what this would even look like? And so Jesus, in response to their question, says to them, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they bring him this coin. And he asks them, well, what do, you, what do you see on it? What is, whose likeness is on it? And what is the inscription that you see there? And on the denarius, we, we have them. You can actually go to museums and you can see what a Roman denarius looks like even today. And on a Roman denarius, you had on one side of it Caesar's image and an inscription on this coin. And the inscription would read, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it would say, high priest. So here's this coin with the image of Caesar who is thought to be God, he's divine, and he's a high priest. And here you have Jesus, as we know from Mark's gospel already, the Son of God, the one who has come to intercede between humanity and God, to reconcile us to him. And here is this coin. And so here is the logic that I want you to see. When Jesus answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Jesus is saying, that which bears Caesar's image and name, you should give back to him. That's why he asked for this denarius, for the poll tax. He says that has Caesar's image on it. It has his name on it. It bears his image and it bears his name. It belongs to him. You should give it back to him. But then he says, and the things that are God's, you should give back to God. Now what Jesus is saying by implication is, not only are those things that bear Caesar's image and his name, should you give back to God, he's saying what bears God's image and bears God's name, you should give back to God. And what's interesting about what Jesus says here is essentially it's an argument from the lesser to the greater, if you will. The word that Jesus uses for likeness here in verse 16 is the same word that gets used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that we read earlier, where God says, let us make man in our image. So what Jesus is saying here is that to give back, give back to Caesar what belongs to him, but also give your entire life back to God. 
And ever so subtly, what Jesus asserts is that God is the supreme authority, despite Caesar's claims, and yet he upholds Caesar's authority. He honors it. He even respects it. Now, we simply don't have time to enter into uh, many really good questions about what about and an, a wicked government, an oppressive government, an unjust government. And what about questions about civil disobedience? Is there such a thing? And if there is, how do you know? How do you make those decisions? But I, but I think we don't, we don't need to necessarily jump into all that in order to at least get a grasp of what Jesus means, not only by the logic of his politics, but what, is it, what do his politics call you to? If the logic of his politics is essentially... Whatever bears, whatever bears Caesar's image and name should be given back to him. And whatever bears God's name and image should be given back to him. What kind of call does that put on us? Jesus' answer, he puts all of our responsibility to be good citizens, as it were, in terms of our relationship to God. Here Jesus, he says essentially to know yourself as an image bearer, means that you were created for God to enjoy Him and to live for Him in absolutely every area of your life. And so just consider two passages from Paul's letter to the church in Rome that helps to expound this very idea that Jesus is talking about here. And both of these passages come in Romans chapter 12 and then one in Romans chapter 13, right after Paul has just spent 11 chapters laying out God's story of salvation, the message of free grace through Jesus. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then just a chapter later, he takes that very idea of what does it look like to live your entire life on the basis of God's mercy, in worship and loyalty and allegiance to God. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now I hope you see what's happening here. Paul is saying this to Christians in Rome probably in the late 50s, a little over 20, 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's writing this 
to Christians under the rule of an oppressive, even at times unjust, political authority. And so we need to see here that Jesus' call, the call of Jesus' politics does not depend on the orthodoxy of that authority, nor its loyalty to God. This is profound, especially, I think, for people who live in the Christian West, as it were, where for the most part, we are very much accustomed to, even if you're not a Christian, and perhaps this is maybe what frustrates you sometimes about the United States, you kind of feel like this country may be too Christian for your sensibilities. But we have enjoyed an incredible amount of benefit in this country because of the Judeo-Christian influences that have marked it from its beginning. Well, Paul is writing to Christians who do not have that at all, and yet he says these kinds of things about our posture towards the authorities. And for one, Caesar thought he was divine, putting himself in the place of God, which would have been a serious hindrance, not only to Jews, but also to Christians, who believed that there was only one God, and that was the God of the Bible, the God of the Lord Jesus. And not only that, Rome was really no friend to Christianity, especially in the late 50s and the early 60s of the first century, when Mark's gospel was written, and even when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome. And if you read historians over the first century, there really was no widespread persecution of Christians, as some have said, but there was definitely persecution and most definitely marginalization of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, well into the 4th century. It wasn't really until 325, in the Council of Nicaea, when Constantine was the emperor of Rome, that things changed. Some saw that as a good thing, some did not. But what I want you to think about here is, we, we need to think about the call of Jesus' politics for the Christian believer Not less than, but more than what we typically think of when we talk about politics in the United States. That is, what I want us to think about is what would it mean for us to cultivate a public faith? There is no doubt, not only for for Christians or Jews or Muslims, but really anybody from any kind of faith background or tradition, there there is significant pressure in our current climate to simply privatize your faith. It's fine for you to believe whatever you want to believe. Just don't tell anybody that. Just don't say that anybody else ought to actually take seriously the claims of your faith in the public realm. The downside of that, and perhaps we'll have opportunity to talk about this in some other sermon, everybody makes religious claims. Even the secularist has a view of ultimate reality has a view of the true and the good and the beautiful, has a very significant and specific view of God. Even if you don't think he exists, that's still a view. That's a religious belief. So how do you cultivate a public faith in a climate like that? I want to share with you a letter that was written most likely in the second century. It's called The Letter to Diognetus where he describes the life of Christians at that time. 
And I think it's a beautiful picture of what we mean by a public faith. Let me read this to you. It says, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men. Nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as a lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all these things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews and foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That is an unbelievable picture of the Christian faith at work in the world. That is a public faith that's possible for us as believers in Jesus. And the question is, how on earth do you get that kind of faith? live that kind of way before not just one another, but our friends and neighbors, especially those who don't profess faith in Christ. And that brings us to the power of Jesus' politics. I want to think with you for a moment here, how do we apply the gospel to this? How do we apply the redemptive work of Jesus to his teaching here about politics or living a public faith I want you to remember the context again of what Jesus is teaching here. It's the last week of his life, at the end of which he will be crucified at the hand of the very people who were here challenging him, trying to trap him. And in fact, 
He told us three times in chapters 8 through 10 that this is what would happen. So again, I just want us to notice Jesus is not unaware of what he's saying here. And the, the, the threats and the challenges that his own followers might face if they take him seriously. But what I also want you to notice here is that we noticed that there are two images in this passage so far. There is the image on the denarius of, of Caesar. But also we noticed that the logic of Jesus' teaching here draws our attention to the image of God in men and women and boys and girls. But what I want you to also notice is there is actually a third image in this passage. And it's the Lord Jesus himself. Because what we have here is that Jesus, according to the scriptures, is the image of God in the flesh. So like what we read earlier from Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So think of it like this for a moment. It's as if we were to say that Jesus is to God what the denarius is to Caesar. However, the striking thing about the story of the gospel is where Jesus here says, give back to Caesar what belongs to him. Give back to God what belongs to him. What we have in the gospel is God giving to us what does not belong to us. The perfect life, the suffering and death, of his beloved son in our place to bear the judgment that we deserve in order that we might enjoy the life that he deserves. That is the very heart of the Christian gospel. That if we're ever to make strides at responding to Jesus' call to live a public faith, to put into practice what he teaches here. The only way we can do that is when we see God giving his beloved son for us first. Because we're simply not going to give back to God our lives according to what the scriptures call you to do, which is you are called to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And the the sad but simple truth is, none of us in this room spends more time loving our neighbors the, the, the way that we spend time taking care of and loving ourselves. Nobody does. And that's what Jesus came to do for you. To do that for you in your place. And when that good news begins to take root in your life, you see, politics for the Christian begins not with giving back what belongs to Caesar or even to God, but with with what God has first given to us through faith in Jesus. It begins with receiving Jesus and all that he has done for you on the cross. 
by admitting that you could never save yourself and that he's done it all for you. And now there are just two implications. There are a bunch we could, could roll out, but just two by way of conclusion here. What this means, if this teaching begins to, to take root in your life, is that politics cannot be the most important thing in your life. They simply can't. The gospel decenters politics and our hope for certain policies or certain candidates or certain cultural trends to go the way we would like to. The gospel recenters your entire life on Jesus and the vision of the future and the hope for the present that he has given you. Now what that means is when the gospel takes root in your life, you, we begin to, you can hold your convictions with humility and at the same time honor those who differ with you. The reason for that is because the gospel continues to draw out our, of our hearts any sense of superior, superiority over other people. It enables you to take them seriously and to listen to them, even if you disagree with them. But second, the gospel frees you. It even calls you to cultivate a public faith. That because Jesus has come, because the kingdom is at hand, because he has promised to make all things new, that means all of your effort to cultivate a public life where you engage in politics and culture and society out of love for God and the common good of others will not be for nothing. That is what the hope of the gospel gives us. And all of this is freely given to us in what Jesus here teaches us in this passage about the logic of his politics and the call of his politics and ultimately the power of his politics. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work through this passage, that you would connect for us what Jesus is saying here, that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment that Jesus demonstrates here, and that most of all, that his life and his death and his resurrection would so take root in our lives, give us such humility, but also confidence and courage, that you would enable us to, to live our lives for your glory and for the good of our neighbors, for the good of this place, for the common good of our city, and that we would not lose heart, that we would not become discouraged, but that we would follow after Jesus wherever that leads, knowing that he has the power over life and death, and that he has promised that one day when he comes back, He will make all things new. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.